Welcome to episode 23 of Kept Secrets. I'm your host, Nikki Rothrock. This podcast is a way that I try to help others who have also experienced childhood sexual abuse, neglect, or trauma. I will discuss my personal experiences and the treatments that helped heal the brokenness. My abuse started as early as five to six years old and by more than 20 different perpetrators. There's a long history, but I've created this podcast in hopes of helping one person. I hope that person is you. Hey, everybody. I just want you to know this is the second time that I have recorded this episode because my loving husband decided to call while I was like 15 minutes into the episode and because I couldn't figure out how to edit it, I had to start over. So this is great. (laughs) Um, So typically I have my phone on do not disturb when I do this because I do all of it through my phone. Well, my husband is on my emergency contact list. So anytime he calls, it rings through even if it's on Do Not Disturb. So that's fun. So I'm starting over. So tonight's episode, I'm going to talk about why children don't tell anybody about sexual abuse or why they um, decide to keep it to themselves. I've got an article here and it's... um, It is called, Why Children Don't Tell Anyone About Sexual Abuse, Overcoming Barriers to Disclosure Helps Survivors Access Resources for Healing. And it's by a doctor. Her name is Elizabeth L. Jeglick. I think I said it right. It's J-E-G-L-I-C. She has a PhD. And she's with Protecting Children from Sexual Abuse. So I thought it might be a good idea just to talk about some things, um, It could be that it hits home with you or with you personally, or maybe if you know someone who has been abused or you suspect someone has been abused, maybe some of this will help you help them. So the article talks about childhood sexual abuse or CSA is a serious global problem impacting one in four girls and one in 13 boys before they reach the age of 18. There are many negative, short, and long-term consequences of CSA, but these can be minimized if the child receives support and treatment. Specifically, most research has found that early disclosure of CSA, for example, within one year of the abuse, an in-depth discussion of abuse of the abuse is protective against negative psychological outcomes in adulthood. However, the majority of children do not disclose the abuse with studies suggesting that only 16, between 16 and 25% of children disclose the abuse to family and friends during childhood, and even fewer disclose to authorities. Further, those who do dis- disclose often wait months and almost com- <laughs> sorry, and most commonly years before finally telling anyone about the abuse. One study of adult survivors of CSA found that most individuals delayed disclosure between 3 and 18 years, with only 21.3% disclosing within one month of the abuse. A study from our lab found that almost half, which would, and their their number is 44.8%, of individuals had never disclosed abuse to anyone. So I want to take a second um, before I actually go into the details of this article And if you are someone 
who is who has been a victim or a and you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or trauma, neglect, whatever it is that that hurt you, um, and you haven't told anyone. I want to um, acknowledge your pain and the heaviness that you carry with you every day. No one deserves that. No child, teenager, even adults. No one deserves to be sexually violated or abused in any way. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. And I do urge that you, um, not urge, but you know, it it does help to talk about it. I can't imagine what my mental state would be like now, almost 30 years later. Um, Because I... You know, my stepdad left our family and I was 15. And I it was within six months of him leaving that I told my mom about the abuse. Um, and then it took some time to process and understand. And I don't believe that I would have made it this far without treatment. Treatment is 100%. That treatment... And my relationship with God and my friends. Those are the three, and my family, the three or four things that got me through the difficult times. So I do encourage you to look into some sort of treatment for yourself, even if it's just going to a regular licensed clinical social worker, someone that you can talk to about it, because I promise it helps. And you're going to probably have to talk about some of the tough stuff, you know, and you may experience some flashbacks and things like that. And I know you don't want to, because that's the reason why you haven't told anybody. Well, that's not the reason, but one of the reasons maybe, but I promise you, it's almost like when you're in treatment, you're letting it go. You're able to release that, um, heaviness within your soul. Um, So I encourage you to reach out to someone and, and, and just start there. You know, I mean, you're going to learn through this article and I'm sure that most of you can relate to a lot of these things. Um, and I just want what's best for you. And I know that I know that heaviness and I know it drives you mad it, it affects every aspect of your life. Um, heck, I even told people, and people meaning my, my mom and, and Ryan at the time, but, you know, that heaviness was still there even after I told somebody, but the treatment helped me to let go of those stones. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story about the little kid that goes into the woods and he comes back out and he's carrying... Um, a bag of stones and they're very heavy. So that kind of symbolizes the abuse. A child goes into a situation like so they go into the woods and they get abused. And then when they leave that, that woods or that situation, that heaviness is with them um, forever. And not forever. I guess I shouldn't say that. Um, that was one of the the examples that Beth would say to me early in treatment and you know she may say something like 
you know, you can let one rock go at a time, but we're going to clean out that bag and you're going to, you're going to feel so much better not carrying that around. So if that does, um, you feel free to reach out to me if you want, if you need help finding resources in your area, I'm more than happy to help. You can send me a message through the Facebook group. You can send me just, you know, how you can send it to the email on here, which I'll tell at the end of the episode. So I just wanted to get kind of get that out there because this is a pretty heavy situation or a heavy topic because it really gets into the nitty gritty of what the child is feeling. Um, So the topic of this part is why don't children tell? Given the importance of detecting CSA, childhood sexual abuse, for both prevention and intervention, researchers have been studying the reasons that children do not disclose, and they have found that there are both internal and external barriers that prevent the child from disclosing the abuse. Number one, feelings of guilt, shame, and self-blame. Check, check, and check for me. Most CSA involves elements of sexual grooming, which broadly speaking encompasses the behaviors and tactics that a child molester employs in preparation for committing sexual abuse against a child. Many of these tactics involve the psychological manipulation of the child so that they they feel that they are in some way responsible for the abuse, which can result in feelings of guilt, shame, and self-blame. Teeny tiny example. I know there was an episode earlier on about um, how to recognize grooming. And my situation with my stepdad, Tom, was, my ex-stepdad, Tom, was 100% this, it was all textbook. Um, The grooming was so manipulative and so deep in my, just deeply rooted in my brain that sometimes now there's still shame and there's still guilt and there's still a little bit of self-blame not as much but like things he would say to me because my mom worked a couple jobs because you know he was kind of a bum and didn't like to keep a full-time job so my mom always had to work two to three jobs and then he would work like a part-time job so he would always use that against me he would say things like you know, if you ever tell your mom what, you know, our secret, then she's going to kick me out and then she's going to have to work more jobs to take care of you and your brother. Well, I hardly saw my mom at that point anyway. So that just made me feel like, oh, well, I don't want that to happen to her. So I'm not going to say anything. The other part of it was the shame feeling uh, the feeling of shame was, was, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It is kind of one of those things that comes and goes with me. You know, I've been able to share a lot with you guys. And sometimes after I've done an episode, you know, I'm like, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. Or, you know, maybe these listeners, think of me differently because I, you know, of what happened. And, you know, I know that you guys are all super cool and you're not judging me, but in my head, that's where it goes. Um, so anyway, the, uh, 
self-blame, that took me a really long time to get through. Um, because, you know, as a, I was nine when the abuse started with, with Tom and I was 15 when it ended. So at nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, he was grooming me. And of course I was going through puberty. So my body was reacting to things and I didn't have control over that. So there would be times that I would approach him. There is a difference between me approaching him then and what it would be like if I approached him now. Meaning then I was under the age of 18 and he was the adult. He clearly knew the boundaries and he decided to break the law. End of discussion on that. Now, I'm not saying like I would do that, but the example is I'm an adult. I'm over 18. He's over 18. It would be consensual, hopefully. So I guess using him in that example is a bad, (laughs) is kind of ick. But, you know, he groomed me to the point that I would go to him in my, you know, my teen years instead of him always coming to me. Well, it was really only when I was like 13 and 14. By the time I was 15, I was over it. I was done with him and I was over the drama. I was over the the shame, which at the time I didn't know that's what it was, but I was just over it. I was like, get this man out of our house so that I can have a boyfriend and I can move on with my life. So that's where the shame and the guilt and the self-blame were for me. And they happened multiple times over the years. Um, you know, when I found out because he told me that he had been beat up in prison and had to go to the hospital. That was a manipulation tactic on his part. He wanted me to feel bad for what happened to him because he was in prison for what he did to me. Do you follow that? He was manipulating me at the age of 30 and trying to get me to feel bad for what happened to him, which was a direct result of something he had done to me. So even at the age of 30, I struggled with that a little bit. (laughs) That's why therapy was so good for me at that time, because I was able to process it with her and, and she was able to guide my thoughts and my feelings in the correct way and, and teach me, you know, this is, this is the manipulation that you're feeling. Okay. So number two, fear. After childhood sexual abuse has happened, perpetrators often use fear, including tactics, fear, including tactics, as part of the post-abuse maintenance phase of sexual grooming. The perpetrator uses these tactics and behaviors so that the abuse can continue without detection. They may tell the child that no one will believe them if they disclose or that they will be blamed for the abuse. They may also threaten physical harm toward the child or someone they love if they disclose the abuse. Since the perpetrator is often a family member or someone important in the child's life, the perpetrator may also use threats of abandonment, rejection, (coughs) or tell the child that their family may break apart if they tell anyone about the abuse. This was also a checkmark for me. Uh, Tom would say things... You know, uh, 
if if you tell your mom what happened, then I'm going to have to move out. And then you won't be able to see me and I won't be able to see you. And mom will have to work more jobs, you know. And, excuse me, I was trying to think of a way to explain to you guys the attachment that I had with Tom. It was a very deep-rooted attachment. Um, I think I talked a lot about this earlier in the podcast episodes because I was a very neglected child, and I don't mean that as I didn't have fancy things or, um, (coughs) excuse me, I didn't have, I didn't feel loved as a child. So, and also we had really bad living situations. Sometimes we wouldn't have electricity or heat. Um, it, it was not ideal, (laughs) but that stuff didn't bother me as much as feeling unloved and unwanted as a child. So when Tom comes along, I'm nine years old. I just turned nine. And my nine-year-old self was thinking he was really cute, you know, in that school schoolgirl crush kind of way. I didn't know anything about him. I mean, what could a nine-year-old possibly know about an adult that, you know, the mom leaves you alone with this person, so obviously he's okay, right? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't even two weeks into him being left alone with me that the abuse started. I mean, it happened that fast and it happened daily through the entire summer of my, my, um, right after my third grade year before, before my fourth grade year. Um, and then it happened three to five times a week as I was growing up until I was 15. You know, it lessened when I got into my 14 year, age 14 year, um, because I was more like, Ugh, get away. You're grossing me out, old man. So the fear for me was that someone would make him leave and then I would be left without the love that I thought he was giving me. I know some people are going to be like, what? It's so twisted. And I... You know, even telling you that, um, it makes me feel a lot of uncomfortableness because, you know, somebody can abuse you and be punished for that. But how do you punish somebody for telling you that they loved you and making you believe that they were your person and they abused you physically, sexually, spiritually, mentally, all the ways that you could be abused, I was with him. So, you know, he could be punished for the sexual abuse, but he was never punished for the mental abuse. And so my fear there and my attachment was because I was afraid he was going to leave and I would be without him. And that attachment, I'm telling you guys, It was so bad. It was bad. You know, the jealousy that I had. Okay, we'll talk about that another time. So fear is something that children can be easily manipulated with. Um, You could say, well, if you tell 
excuse me, you tell your mom or dad what I'm doing to you and they're not gonna let me come around and I'm not gonna be able to play toys with you or play house with you or whatever. And so they put it back on the kid, which is completely wrong, but that's why they do it. So the first one we talked about was feelings of guilt, shame, and self-blame, and then fear. Number three is lack of understanding. Depending upon the child's age and level of developmental maturity, the child may be unsure or unaware that what has happened to them was wrong or inappropriate. This can happen with younger children or cognitively impaired children, as the perpetrator can tell them what they're doing is a game or normal behavior. It could also happen if the abuser is a loved one or someone the child is told to trust, as they may believe that the trusted adult would not do anything to harm them. It is only later when the child is older that they recognize the behaviors as sexual abuse. So this is why it's super important to teach your children boundaries, physical boundaries with other people. Um, there, I think there's been a lot more child-on-child perpetration going on or like perpetrators of children who have been abused who are abusing other children because that's what they've been taught. And so... For them to maybe feel a little bit of power or something over someone that's weaker than them, they abuse them. That's where it all starts. Um, Well, it all starts when the adult abuses the child and then the child abuses the other child. But um, lack of understanding. That's why it's so important to explain to your children boundaries. The... uh, official names of the private parts and you know the private parts of the opposite sex so that they could explain to you what they did and the reason why that's so important is if the child does disclose that something happened to them um and they say let's say that a little girl is like he did this to my bottom well to a a toddler The bottom could be their vagina area or their, their bottom area, like their, their, uh, rectum area. So as an official, like a person in the legal area of it, if a child says they did something to the bottom, it makes a difference when you are trying to convict someone of having inappropriate relations with a child. So it's so important to teach your child, yes, this is my vagina, this is my penis, this is my my rectum, or, you know, these are my breasts, and this is my nipple. Like, it's very important to teach them the technical names of things just in case anything like this were to ever happen, they would be able to say, so-and-so touched my breasts or my vagina or whatever, instead of they touched my bottom, and then you're like, okay, well, what they do, smack you on the bottom. No, it could have been so much deeper than that and so much more complicated than what you're understanding from them because they don't know the proper terms. Excuse me. (coughs) So teach your children as much as you possibly can without being a creeper. Um, You know, education is so important, especially when the kids are young because it helps them with their confidence, it helps them with their communication. Um, 
So if, for example, uh, I'm going to use a generational situation here. So let's say that my mom, her generation, there was no abuse in her family. Uh, she had no idea what to look for. Okay, so she thought that that stuff didn't happen. And I actually had my uncle say to me one time, I didn't even know what a child molester was until this happened. And this was not my situation, but another situation. But he was in his late 20s before he knew what an actual child molester was because he was not educated. Um, so anyway, my mom's, this is just a, uh, example. I'm not telling you anything about my mom. This is, this is not a true story. So mom's situation was that she wasn't abused. Nothing happened to her. So she grew up thinking that every family was like that. So she has children. Hi, that's me. Then she sends me over to the neighbor's house to play. And the neighbor kids, they are doing something out in the yard. And I have to go in to go to the bathroom. Well, the neighbor kid's dad is in the house. And he walks in when I'm in the bathroom. And he shows me his penis. Oh, my gosh. First of all, don't ever do that because it's wrong. And second of all, I was never taught that that was wrong. So I didn't know. And this isn't my situational story. This is not a true story. I didn't know then I needed to go back to tell my mom that that was bad, that a man showed me his penis and I'm only like 10 years old at my friend's house, my neighbor's house, playing because my mom trusted that this man would and, and his spouse or whatever would not do anything to harm me because she didn't know that that could happen. You know, she's being naive in all of this. So years later... Uh, I get, and like I said, I just want to keep telling you guys, this is not a true story. This is something I'm clearly making up on the fly, obviously. So I, years later, I get married and I have children and I end up marrying somebody who is like that neighbor man who showed me his penis when I was 10. Didn't think anything was wrong with it. So now the guy that I'm with and I have children with is showing his penis to my kids So it, and I didn't know that it was wrong because my mother didn't teach me that it was wrong. And I wasn't able, because I didn't think it was wrong. I wasn't able to teach my children that it was wrong. Do you see the, I really hope I didn't mess that up, but I really hope that you kind of understand why it's so important to educate because, you know, I can't tell you how many parents that I've heard of through friends, um, things like that, where they're, they're disclosing something happened to them. And this could be when they're adults. And their parent or whatever is like, I had no idea that that happened. No, you didn't because it, it wasn't in your radar. You know, and I'm not saying that if that was you, that it was bad parenting. I'm not saying that. It's lack of knowledge. You didn't know. But what I'm saying to you now is to educate yourself, educate your kids, and let them educate their kids. You can stop that cycle of abuse right now. You can stop it dead in its tracks. Okay, kind of got on a little rant about that. But 
Um, the next one is relationship with the perpetrator. This is number four. As noted above, most children know their abusers. In fact, only 7% of childhood abuse is perpetrated by a stranger. Most perpetrators are family and friends, and one-third of the cases, the abuser is another minor. As noted above, when the abuser is a family member or friend, the child may be confused or may worry that they will not be believed or that disclosure can harm the family unit. If the perpetrator is a respected member of the community, such as a religious leader, coach, or teacher, they often not only sexually groom the child, but also their family and the community, so the abuse is less likely to be detected or believed. Wowzer. I don't know a lot about um, teachers, religious leaders, or coaches that abuse children. Um, I've heard about it through the news, things like that, but I've not ever been um, impacted by that. I don't know anybody, to my knowledge, that this has happened to. So this is something I don't really have anything to stand on, you know? So um, the relationship with the perpetrator in my situation was a family friend at first with Tom. Now, all the other ones, I knew all of them. In some way, it could have been one of them was my stepsister's boyfriend when I was in first grade. One of them was a grandfather. One of them was Tom's brother. One was Tom's cousin. Uh, Two were neighbors. Three were neighbors. Um, When I was um, living in town. And when we moved out to the country, that stuff kind of stopped. It was literally just Tom. But when I lived in town, there were, there were a handful of others that would come into our home and, and things would happen. So, you know, just be cautious of the people that you let around your kids. And if you want to be a crazy psycho and not ever let your kids around anybody, that's okay. <laughs> You're just protecting them. You know, I'm, I'm not serious in that because... You know, I don't have children of my own, but I do know that when my stepkids are around, they're older, but when they're around, I do watch them and make sure that they are not inappropriate by accident or anything like that. So I do kind of keep an eye out for the other people that they may come in contact with. So maybe that's where you can start. I don't know. Number five. So going through the five again, or the other four, we got why children don't tell, feelings of guilt, shame, and self-blame, fear, lack of understanding, relationship with the perpetrator, and number five is gender. This is interesting. CSA, childhood sexual abuse, in general, is one of the most underreported crimes. However, boys and men are less likely to disclose CSA than girls and women. Male survivors of sexual abuse report gender-based stereotypes, shame, and fear of disbelief as factors preventing disclosure of CSA. Male survivors of sexual abuse report gender-based stereotypes, shame, and fear of disbelief as factors of preventing disclosure of CSA. I had to read that again because I felt like I didn't read it right. Um... In addition, a recent study of self-reported sexual abuse 
found that 40% of men reported that the perpetrator was a woman. I'm just going to leave that there because that's interesting to me. Um, that section was pretty small. <laughs> but basically, it doesn't have to be a man only to be a sexual perpetrator. It could completely, 100% could be a woman. So just keep your eyes open. Educate your kids. So, what can be done to facilitate disclosure? Archie would like to know. He said, give me a treat. Disclosing sexual abuse is a very complex process, and not all disclosures are positive for the survivor. For example, if a survivor is not believed, shamed, or even shunned as a consequence of their disclosure, this could result in re-victimization. Further, formal reporting to authorities does not often end with the conviction of the perpetrator and can be distressing. Oh boy, that's true. However, timely disclosure of the abuse is the only way in which the child can get help and stop the abuse from happening. We did a study where we asked adult survivors of CSA what factors they think would facilitate disclosure of CSA and they reported. There are... The first one was psychoeducation and awareness. Many survivors reported that people may... You better hush. You better hush. Uh, Many survivors reported that people may be more likely to report CSA if they knew more about it, especially how prevalent it was, and that many other people have experienced it. Those who reported the CSA to family and friends friends did this so did so because the topic either came up in conversation or someone asked them about it directly. Therefore, guardians and caregivers should be educated about the signs of CSA and what to do if they suspect their child is being victimized. Further discussions and education about what constitutes CSA, its privilege <laughs> prevalence words are hard. <laughs> And how to report it could help survivors come forward. And this is basically what I was just saying. Educate your kids. Educate your spouse. Educate everybody. And let everybody know. You know, my kids know, you know, not to touch them because, you know, you. some people are like, you know, they think that if they found out that their kid was abused that they would, like, quote unquote, kill that person. I've heard that so many times. Somebody said that, it did that to my kid. It would take everything I could not to kill that person. Well, you can say that, but until it 100% happens to you and you know that it's a fact, you know, it's, you don't know how you're going to react. You know, my mom, she cried. She didn't get mad the last time. She did get mad early on in my life when it came up a few different times and, uh, you know, I, I shared a while back about writing a story. I had gotten mad at Tom one time and I wrote a story about a girl who was having a relationship with her stepdad. <laughs> it was autobiographical or, you know, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, autobiographical, is that a word? Anyway, so I wrote this and Tom's cousin who was living with us at the time found it 
Now keep in mind, later, this guy also was inappropriate with me. So this is interesting how this happens. So um, he found the notebook that had the story in it. He took it to my mom. My mom about lost her mind. She came at me. She didn't come to me and say, you know, Nick, did this happen? If so, you can tell me. You know, I want to, I want to protect you. I, I love you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. What she said to me was, what the hell are you doing writing stories like this? Did it happen? Because if it did, I want to know. Well, don't come at me like that with your claws out and all that because, of course, I'm not going to admit something happened because you're mad. Don't get mad. If your child comes to you and tells you something, or they're going to tell you something about this, or maybe they have to write it down and leave you a note and tell you, you know, this person has abused me or they're touching me or, you know, help me get away from this person. Do not react with anger because that will shut them down. And in my case, I was in fifth grade when this happened. I had to go through the rest of fifth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade because my mother did not believe she didn't come at me. And I'm not blaming the abuse on her. I'm just saying, had she come at me in a different way and not been so rare about it, then maybe I would have opened up to her and told her, yeah, this is what's happened. The story's true. But I didn't. I kept that to myself. And then I had to explain to Tom why I wrote it. And that was a little uncomfortable because he was mad. And I was like, man, I was the one that was mad in the beginning. And now everybody's mad at me because I wrote this down. Excuse me. So, anyway, um, if somebody discloses to you, please be gentle and kind and compassionate with them because you may, you have no idea. And you, if you're a victim and a survivor, then you know how much courage you have to have to tell somebody. So this may be the only time that that person has been able to tell somebody and you're the person that they picked. So just have a little bit of kindness and compassion when they do disclose. Okay. So psychoeducation and awareness. Number two, improved criminal justice practices. Amen on that. Most survivors who disclosed the abuse indicated that they did so to prevent the further abuse of themselves and others, punish the perpetrator, and enable treatment for both themselves and the perpetrator. This suggests that many survivors disclose to the hope or with the hope that someone will act. However, as stated above, few perpetrators of CSA end up being convicted, and the criminal justice process can be difficult and re-traumatizing. As such, Making sure that everyone involved in the criminal justice response to CSA operates from a trauma-informed perspective to minimize harm and also provide education to caregivers and community members on how to respond effectively and appropriately to disclosures of CSA. This little piece right here is what the what Chaucey's place and my, my state... Um, Chaucey Quillen was a, a girl who had been abused by her biological father. They went through the court process. The father ended up getting probation, didn't have to go to jail. Um, she 
ended up taking her life because of the humiliation. And I don't know what she was going through. I have an idea. But, you know, I can imagine that it would be pretty pretty embarrassing to tell your story and the court system gives them six months probation and you're supposed to just go on with your life with that person. I mean, this was her father, her biological father. And, you know, I just can't... I just can't imagine what was going through her mind at the time. So the community that I used to live in, they didn't want to re-traumatize the child. And in my personal case, back in the 1990s, um, the prosecutor later told me that we did a plea agreement or the prosecution did a plea agreement with my stepdad to keep me from having to testify in a trial because they said that that would be too traumatizing for me. Well, Tom ended up serving four years in prison. And then when he got out, he had eight years of probation. I don't feel like that was enough. Yeah. I had to pay for my therapy later and it ended up being like three or $4,000. Um, but the thing is he still lives his life free. Now he paid his debt to society. Yes. Um, but now he has children in his life. I can only hope that he has been blessed with impotence for the rest of his adulthood. And he has, you know, no sexual desires at all. And he doesn't do anything to these children. But my gut feeling is that I was not his only victim. Obviously, they say that, like... Most perpetrators have like 40 to 60 victims in their lifetime. Can you believe that? 40 to 60 victims? Now, that could be off. And don't quote me on it, but I know it's a big number. And I know that it about made me crap my pants (laughs) when I heard it. Because I was like, what? I wasn't the only one? That's bull crap. Like, I just have a feeling that the system could be better. And I think that they could punish a little bit harsher for these kind of crimes. That's all I'm saying. Um, Number three, emotional motivation. Stop. As noted, CSA results in a myriad, myriad, I hope you know what that means and I hope I said that right, of emotions including anger, guilt, shame, betrayal, depression, and trauma, among others. While some of these emotions can serve as barriers to reporting, the emotions can also facilitate disclosure, knowing that help may be available to ease these negative and intense feelings can prompt disclosure. Thus, child abuse education and outreach efforts should highlight and facilitate liaisons with mental health providers so the survivors know that those options are available to them. Okay. I think this is a really good thing because I know that schools, I don't know what they do now, but 30 years ago or more, they had, like, I can remember in first grade, they had this bear hug thing, like where this guy would come in or guy or woman would come in dressed as a bear. And it was about good touch, bad touch kind of thing. 
I remember that in first grade. I don't remember much about the program, but I remember it was in the school system. Stop. Fast forward a little bit to fifth grade. There was also a good touch, bad touch program where they would come in and they would talk about what's good touch, what's bad touch. And I think I told you guys before that one of my friends in school actually told about her stepfather who was um, molesting her at the time. And I was definitely not going to say anything about mine because of what I had just gone through with my mom in the notebook. Um, But... I think it's really important to let the kids know, hey, if this has happened to you, we can help you. Um, We can get you therapy or counseling. People think therapy is such a horrible thing. Guys, it is not. That stereotype or whatever, that stigma, whatever it's called, it is not a bad thing. It is what you do with it. And if you are not ready to take the steps to fix your mental health, and to go to them 100% on board to do it, then it's just not time. But I promise with hard work, it does pay off. Okay. So just letting the children know if this is a school situation, letting them know, hey, if you, if this happened to you, just tell us we can help you. It's, you know, try not to make it a huge deal because then that kind of takes away the <clears throat> the feelings of shame and all that stuff in the, in the moment. But then once they've disclosed it, you can let them know, hey, you were very brave for telling us because, you know, you're cool. You told us the truth, you told us what happened. Now, because you told us, we can keep it from happening to other people. Okay. And I don't really know how I feel about what I just said. So if you don't agree with it and it came out weird and wrong, just ignore that part. Okay. Number four, social support. This is the last one. Survivors report that a number that the number one motivator to facilitate disclosure is access to support. Often when a child is abused, especially if they are being sexually groomed, they feel very alone. Survivors in our study reported that the biggest motivator coming forward about the abuse would be the support of being believed, not being blamed or held responsible for the abuse, and having emotional support available to them. Since many survivors may report a peer, education efforts should also address what peers should do if abuse is disclosed and how they can best help their friends should they disclose. I think this is really cool. One of the things that I, and I'm almost out of time, but one of the things that I remember when I would go to see Beth You know, I didn't necessarily feel loved and supported at home after I disclosed what had happened. I did with Ryan, but it was still really weird. But with my mom, I didn't feel that, you know, compassion. And I'm sorry this happened to you. I love you. What can I do to help? Do you need me to come to treatment with you? Do you, you know, it was very hands off with my mom. It was, you know, she did have to work more because he left. Um, She did have a lot of trouble in her own life because of the situation. Um, But one of the things that I recall from seeing Beth was Beth believed me. There was no doubt that she believed me. And I found that because she believed me, I was able to tell her more. 
And I was able to be confident in what I was saying because she wasn't going to judge me. She wasn't going to come at me and say, well, you're lying. That's wrong. I can't believe that he would do that to you. No, she believed everything. And I am so grateful for that because that helped with my treatment so much. Um, The last little bit of this is disclosure of abuse is a complex process. Inherit with many internal and external barriers. Sorry, I lost my track. Lost where I was. However, it is only through disclosure that they informally, that informally to family. Oh my gosh. (laughs) However, it is only through disclosure be that informally to friends or family or formally to authorities that the survivor can access the help, resources, and support they need for healing. This dog's driving me nuts. I'm so sorry that he's in the background. Um, I just feel like this, this article really sums everything up. Um, kids are... Uh, Dr. Phil used to always say when he would have an episode about divorce or something like that, he would say kids always find a way to blame themselves for adult issues. Um, And in this situation, it's pretty easy. Stop. Stop. I'll let you out in a second. It's pretty easy for the kid to blame themselves because, I mean, I, I blamed myself. You know, I... I thought, I never one time thought, I'm so incredibly hot, no wonder this guy wants to have sex with me. I never thought that, okay? But what I did think was that I was special to him. And I didn't care when I was little that I had to do this stuff to, to get his attention. Because I wasn't getting attention anywhere else. And, you know, kids are very interesting creatures Um, and it's up to us as the people who have experienced it um, to be that support system for them and even other adults you know if if you're a 50 year old woman and you're or man and you're just now disclosing that you've been you were abused when you were two three ten whatever you know we're here to help support you because we believe you we know what it's like to be not believed um in my case I know what it's like to be believed by you know the authorities which is great there was a situation um, when I disclosed the rape when I was 12 by one of Tom's friends um because it was four years later that I disclosed it to the authorities, there was absolutely no physical evidence. Um, and there was nothing that could be done. So this man still walks the streets. Um, from what I understand, it has become generational in his family. His son recently um, got in trouble for inappropriate things. And, you know, it's generational. If, if you have somebody in your life that has absolutely no respect for, you know, women or for men and they just take what they want, you know, that's, that's the kind of person that I completely turn around from. I can't even be friends with someone like that because 
my defenses go to the moon because I'm like, oh no, you're not a safe place for me. So, um, I just think that it's so important to educate the kids. If you don't learn anything or understand, take away anything from this episode, just as educate the kids, you know, even if it's, if you have a niece or nephew like I do and, um, talk to their parents and just be like, look, we really need to talk to Sally and Steve about, you know, their private parts and we need to talk about boundaries and, you know, educate them. And maybe the parents are like, no, we don't need to do that. They're too young. Wrong. They are never, ever too young to know their body and to know boundaries. It's okay to say no to somebody. If, if grandpa or grandma want to come over and give you a kiss on the cheek or want you to kiss them or whatever, and the kid is like, no, I don't want to do that. One, because grandpa smells funny or whatever. Don't make your kid do it because you are, you are making, you're taking away their choice to say no in a situation. You know, it's not like take out the garbage. No, I don't want to. Okay. Well, no, this is something that they are uncomfortable doing. And as their parent, you should support that. If they say they don't want to do it, you, they shouldn't have to. They should not be forced into doing that. Um, I only bring that one up because I actually used that as an example in a presentation years ago. And somebody talked to me later after class about it. They're like, you know, I never thought about it that way. You know, I make my kids kiss their grandma and grandpa all the time. And, you know, if, if they're not comfortable doing it, they shouldn't have to do it. So... That is all I have for this week. Um, I Like I've said in every episode before, if you want to reach out to me, I am here. Um, my Facebook group is Kept Secrets, a podcast about overcoming child abuse or childhood trauma, I think. I can never get these right every time. You'd think I'd write it down. Um, I like, I really would like for that group to grow and I read, I am the only one that can read that stuff as far as I'm the administrator on that. Excuse me right now. I think we have about 50 people in there. Um, I would really like for that group to grow and be a support group for each other. And, you know, I just think it would be great. Um, and you can also send me messages through that. Some people have done that and it's been amazing. I love hearing the positive feedback because, like I said, in almost every response, just when I feel like I can't, I don't have anything else to offer, Somebody comes to me and says that I have helped them. And so then I do another episode. So if I'm helping you, I'm so grateful. You know, I was telling my cousins the other day that I wouldn't change my life and how I was brought up because I'm happy now. I've been able to make those changes and, and I'm happy where I am. And I, if I changed one thing... I may not make, it may not make it back here. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying I enjoyed any of it. I'm just saying that stuff is what made me who I am. And, you know, it's part of life. Things happen. Um, It shouldn't happen. I hate that it happens. I want to punch people in their areas for it happening, you know. Um, But we can help. We can be supportive of others. You know, see if there's an advocacy center in your in your city or even the next city over um, and volunteer. 
Um, if you're in a place where you're, you don't feel strong enough to help others and you might need the help, go to that same place. There's a place um, in another county south of me that has an advocacy center and they help with all victims. It could be a victim of a fire. It could be a victim of a rape. It could be a victim of domestic violence. Um, any of that stuff, they are an advocacy center and that is what they're for. They're there to help you. They have group sessions. Um, I think they have one-on-one sessions and it's usually either very, very inexpensive or free. Um, not for profit, obviously. Uh, so anyway, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or if you have topic suggestions for the next few episodes. Um, my email for this podcast is kepsecretspodcast at gmail.com. And you can always reach me through Facebook. I've said that a thousand times, but I'm going to keep saying it just so that everybody knows. So I hope you guys have the rest, a good rest of your day um, doing whatever you're doing. And I hope that I know that I don't know what I'm going to say. I hope that you come back for the next episode and I hope that you find something that helps you. Have a good day.